I'm sure no one noticed any of the little brouhaha that took place up here in the front pew a few minutes ago. I had a glass of water down there. Uh, <clears throat> as true for so many of us at this time of the year, I'm, I'm all medicated up because of allergies. And uh, uh, so I had a little glass of water down there with me, and uh, uh, these wonderful big bell sleeves just knocked it right over. <clears throat> uh, so the word is wet today. I, I want to say uh, a word of thanks uh, one more time to your session and to your pastors for uh, six wonderful weeks with you. It has been great to meet in Sunday school with, with uh, officers-elect and with others and talk about what we believe and who we are and to have been able to share some times of worship with you. It has been a wonderful privilege, and I want to thank you all for that. Thank you for your worship. Thank you for your music. Thanks for all the many ways that you have enriched my life over these last few weeks. Uh, I give thanks to God for that. And before we approach the scripture this morning, I want to kind of set things up for us uh, for two reasons. One of those is the place of this scripture in the gospel that we're going to be reading, but also the occasion that we're in the midst of on this particular Sunday when we will be ordaining and installing officers. Uh, often on this Sunday, the sermon is pointed particularly at those people who are about to be ordained uh, or installed, and everybody else just kind of gets to eavesdrop. Well, this Sunday, what I'd like to do is I'd like to include all of us in the sermon and maybe let these officers elect do the eavesdropping. Because I think that this is a scripture and an idea that is not just unique to service as an officer. It's it is something that is called forth from all of us. And so I hope that we'll be able to, to hear it in that way. As we approach this passage in Mark's gospel, we need to recognize that this comes kind of in the middle of Mark's gospel. It is an opportunity for a turning point to be observed. Jesus, in the verses just preceding this passage, has just begun to talk about his future and his path to Jerusalem and, and what he is expecting and what his disciples may expect. And so this is a, a kind of an opening up moment for them and for him and perhaps also for us. So before we approach these scriptures, let us ask God to open our hearts and minds so that we might hear. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to receive your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, so that hearing we may follow your will and live in your light. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark, the ninth chapter, beginning to read with the second verse. Let us listen for God's word to us today through the words of the Gospel writer. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, 
for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a strange story, isn't it? Eerie, even. And, and, and yet when I approach the story of the transfiguration, my tendency has always been to, to identify with those disciples, with Peter and James and John. I think about how it must have felt to them to be brought up short and caught off guard and, and very, frightened, uh, very frankly frightened by this experience. I think about what Jesus had just been telling them in the preceding verses about his own future. And about theirs too. Cross-bearing and death did not fit with any of their notions of messianic glory. And they don't fit with ours either. Now as Mark tells the transfiguration story, as I said, this comes, this event comes right on the heels of the shock and pain, the rebuke and confusion of Caesarea Philippi. The Son of Man must suffer, says Jesus. No, Lord, it will not be so with you, says Peter. Get behind me, Satan, warns Jesus. It must have been a tremendous blow to the disciples to hear that, that God's Messiah would suffer and be killed. I mean, it went against, against hundreds of years of tradition and thought. And not only that, but they received a double shock to their preconceived notions about how they would be saved, about their reward for following Jesus. Jesus would suffer in being obedient to God. They would suffer in following Jesus. But here... Here in the transfiguration, this inner circle of Jesus' disciples get a glimpse of his glory. Here they receive heaven's confirmation of who he is. Here they're given a divine command to listen to him, to obey him, even if his words are demanding or offensive or contrary to their expectations. We need to remember that In Mark, the story of Jesus ends with the cross. Oh, there there is an empty tomb, but there is also the silence of frightened women there in chapter 16. There are no resurrection appearances. But there is in Mark's gospel the story of the transfiguration. And when we've remembered these things, this story reminds us that the transfigured one, the one who fulfills the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, the one, 
the Son as confirmed by God's own voice, this one is going to the cross. The cross is the goal toward which the transfigured one moves. Apart from the cross, the story of Jesus can't be told. And that can be a hard reality for us. When I was serving a church in Little Rock some years ago, I remember the time that my wife Betty Ann and I went to visit the local independent Bible church that was our neighbor. It was a Sunday, it was a vacation Sunday for me, and yeah, we went to church, and it's kind of a busman's holiday, but, but we went anyway. There were a lot of folks in the area who attended this church, and we wanted to see what it was like. And as we walked around the building, I remember our noticing that there was not a cross to be seen, inside or out. And later on, I, I asked the pastor of the church about that, and he admitted that, yes, it was true. I asked him why there was no cross. And his answer was, well, the cross is such a downer, you know. For many of us, perhaps even for most of us, this story about the transfiguration is not truly believable. We're, we're much more comfortable with the story of the Jesus who teaches and is misunderstood and, and even with the final rejection and crucifixion. We can understand a story about failure and betrayal. It fits with our modern experience. You know it as well as I do. There's a, there's a deep cynicism abroad in our world today born of disappointed dreams and common suspicions. Heroes turn out to be liars and adulterers and common cheats. There's so much tragedy and violence, so much senseless death, so much distrust and hatred and prejudice, and the world can seem devoid of God's presence. But Mark's gospel contains an important word for us when we fear that we're alone in a world characterized by suffering, bigotry, fear, and betrayal. And that is that God is at work. Seeds are planted that will bear fruit. The transfiguration itself is a, a brief, glorious reminder that the world will not be left to itself. Even after Moses and Elijah and the cloud and the heavenly voice have left, Jesus remains. And he remains available to us still in word and sacrament, in study and service, in loving and caring fellowship. As we stand with these disciples, we share with them their inability fully to comprehend the transfiguration. And yet we're not left merely baffled. The voice of God gives us insight and direction. Jesus Christ is God's beloved Son, and we are to heed his words. Under the authority of Christ and obedient to his teaching, we are called to live our lives. 
We're not left to muddle or bumble through life merely doing the best we can, right or wrong. God's love is made flesh, and God's will is given voice in Jesus Christ. And as his followers, we live by listening to him. That is the key. Listen to him. We have it from God's own voice. Listen to him. Oh, there are plenty of voices around and within us today, just as there were plenty of voices around and within those disciples. But we aren't supposed to listen to those voices when we wonder what life and love and grace and power and strength and compassion are all about. We are to listen to Jesus. He is the one by whose name we're called. I mean, we're not Mosesists or Elijahists or Peterists or, or even Paulists. We belong to Christ. And He is the one to whom we should be listening. So much of the dissension and debate in the church today arises out of the fact that we've forgotten to whom we're supposed to be listening. The primary voice and the primary life we all ought to be listening to is the voice and life of Christ because we aren't just to listen to his words, we are also to listen to his life. Because he didn't speak clear and authoritative words on all the issues and choices that surround us today. And so we have to listen also to his life and see how he lived, how he loved, how he accepted and cared. All the rest of scripture, all of life and living, we see through the lens of Jesus as he is presented in the gospel. It is to Jesus that we are to listen. When we find Scriptures disagreeing with each other. We are to listen to Jesus. When we hear Christians disagreeing with each other about who is in and who is out and, and whose piety is true and whose piety is false, we are to listen to Jesus. It's just that simple and just that difficult and just that profound. We are to listen to Jesus, period. Transfiguration lasted for only a moment. Try as he might, Peter was unable to hold on to it. They had to go back down the mountain, back down into the valley where there were sick people to be healed and disputes among the disciples to be settled and, and much more work to be done. And yes, as Jesus promised, there was suffering and death. But you know, I'm convinced that these glimpses still come to us from time to time sometimes even in a service of worship, sometimes the music or a prayer or the sermon 
or the presence of the person sitting next to you pulls back the veil for just a moment and the insight is gained if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. But when you walk out these doors in a little while, it will still be an ordinary, chilly February day with nothing visibly different from when you came in. There will still be problems waiting and the world as it is. But you see, you will be different. You may not say anything to anyone, at least not at first, but you will be different. Having glimpsed something of God's glory, something of the Spirit's sustaining power, something of this transfigured one who claims you body, mind, and spirit, and who calls you to listen. question is, to whom are you listening? And following that, if you're listening, what difference will it make? Let us pray. Transfigured one, the voices around us are many and varied. Many of them know us well enough to call us by name. Help us to listen in the midst of all the cacophony to your voice. Help us to hear not only what you say, but what you teach, how you live, what you value, whom you love. And give us the courage and the joy to follow you. Amen.